Good evening. Uh, my name is Jim Endersby. Thank you for turning out on this rather horrible, cold and wet evening. Um, this is the third in a series on utopian gardens, and as you can see tonight, I've given it the title Making New Plants A History, and I want to stress that it's a history, not the history. There are many, many ways we could tell this story, uh, and vast amounts of detail are going to be left out, because I'm going to pick a particular thread, which in my mind at least, connects modern genetically modified crops back to Francis Bacon and his utopian dreams. And the place that connects them, slightly surprisingly, is this ramshackle collection of chicken coops and goat pens and guinea pig breeding huts, which was established on Long Island um, at the beginning of the 20th century. This is a contemporary newspaper report that told readers of the Washington Evening Star that utopia was being achieved on Long Island. It, that was a claim incidentally sufficiently arresting for the story to be picked up and run in quite a number of other papers. The dream of creating new species to order, as it says, was finally being more than realised by the Carnegie Institution at its new Station for Experimental Evolution at Cold Spring Harbour on Long Island, uh, still a prominent and widely regarded modern genetics laboratory today. And you get a flavour of the story there just by having a look at some of the headlines um, at the top. New species to order. Man in his new role of inventing creator. Experimental evolution, inquiries into laws of heredity, how to produce supermen, where Darwin was wrong. Evolution is not gradual, but proceeds by jumps. And if we scroll down, there's pictures of the station. I have a great fondness for guinea pigs, so I like to include a picture of one wherever I can. Some of the station's raw material, there are the goats, the living raw material on which these experiments are being done. And the story quotes the first director of the station, Charles Benedict Davenport, Man, long content with his part as caretaker and subjugator of living species, is now learning the new role of creator. And the story says explicitly that the dream of Bacon is being brought to life at this station, and they quote Davenport to that extent. Um, just to remind ourselves, something that I've touched on in earlier lectures, the dream is expressed in this book, The New Atlantis, a book that Bacon left unfinished at the end of his life. Um, and it described a fictitious island, uh, a typical kind of uh, lost world in the kind of tradition of many utopian narratives, where they had an extraordinary specialised research institution, Solomon's House. Uh, and the philosophers of Solomon's House were able to perform these extraordinary wonders, uh, amongst which well, they had specialised gardens where they created new kinds of animals and plants. Um, this is a modern illustration that imagines what the uh, New Atlantis might have looked like, and some of the wonders include people flying and so on. And the gardens are there, if we just enlarge them a little bit, you can see the uh, wondrous achievements, strawberries the size uh, so big that they have to be carried in wheelbarrows and so on. Um, so this sense of transcending the boundaries of nature is really very explicit in Bacon's text. Um, and it's that dream that is being referred to, the link that uh, takes us uh, right the way from there right back to the, right up to the 20th century. Now, why is this dream only being realised at the beginning of the 20th century? It's already hundreds of years old. What is it that's happened that allows these extravagant promises to be made? Now, if we were to ask my fellow professional historians of science, a bunch of nerds, frankly, they would tell us it's all because of him, Gregor Mendel, right? 
because Mendel's work, even though it's first published in German in the 1860s, is almost entirely ignored for the 35 years or so after it appears. And it's 1900, just before the Carnegie Institution opens its station, that Mendel's work is rediscovered. Um, and uh, what Mendel has done, of course, is cross plants to produce uh, new kinds of uh, plants. Uh, what he's particularly interested in is stable hybrids, hybrids that won't revert to their parental types. Um, and as I said, his papers were cited occasionally, but largely unknown. The rediscovery uh, would be the thing that, as I say, historians of science would point to, and there are three people associated with it. Karl Korrens, Hugo de Vries, a name I'm going to come back to, and Eric von Schirmach. Um, and uh, as a result of their rediscovery, a new science, which was initially known as Mendelism, is born. By 1905, it's becoming known as genetics. Um, and of course, this is a very important story. The story of genetics is a key part of the biology of the 20th century and a key part of many other kinds of history, so much so that um, the very distinguished historian Evelyn Fox Keller refers to the 20th century as the century of the gene, which rather neatly begins in 1900 and then symbolically ends round about 1990 or so, uh, more or less because the US Congress cancels the superconducting supercollider, the last really big grand physics project, um, but funds the Human Genome Project instead. And that's the symbolic moment when biology comes out as top science for the 20th century. And as I say, that's one way of telling the story. I'm going to try and tell you a slightly different story, uh, looking at some things that are barely mentioned in the conventional histories and try and persuade you that there's another way of looking at all of this. And I want to talk about something called the mutation theory. I'll explain exactly what that is as we go along. It's a major new scientific theory. It claims to actually be a significant revision to and correction of Darwin. And so when it first appears in America, you would expect it to appear in a prominent scientific journal. No. It comes out here in the Youth's Companion. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples of the kind of magazine this was. Um, uh, nice homely images of people carving their pumpkins and so on. Um, it's a very innovative magazine. It's aimed at particularly Christian families, uh, and it's one of the first to successfully employ subscription selling on a grand scale, so the people who sold subscriptions got rewards from you know, roller skates, uh, sort of up to and including um, subsidized college educations as a result of doing it. Um, and it promotes all kinds of ideas to do with science and modernity, uh, hello, boys. How would you like to build models of concrete mixers, steam shovels, elevators, motors, and dynamos that actually go? This is the kind of advertising it gives. It gives you a sort of sense of who it's meant. My favorite ad, I have no idea what this is about, is somebody's advertising for teams of turkeys that can be saddled and uh, who knows. Anyway, in amongst all this stuff appears a very brief column uh, in their science and, science and nature column. January 1901. And this is, I put earliest in with a question mark because this same story appears in several newspapers and magazines around the same time. So there's some kind of syndication or whatever, but this is the very earliest one that I've actually found. Um, and that's the whole story, right? one paragraph. Um, uh, and I want to just quickly point out one or two slightly, well, I find slightly interesting things about this story. So it tells the story of Hugo de Vries, the well-known Dutch botanist who's credited with a momentous discovery concerning the origin of species. His observations indicate that new species appear suddenly by mutation, never as the outcome of progressive variation. You may remember that the story I showed you before said Darwin was wrong, evolution proceeds by jumps. This is the theory they're referring to. 
He avers he has been able for the first time to watch the formation and development of new species. And that's a very big claim. Because evolution is fast, we can actually observe it. We can study it. Um, and uh, it cites kind of important scientific stories, the English scientific journal Nature, a new period in the theories of the origin of species and of evolution has been inaugurated. So there's a process going on here which I think of as interpretation rather than as popularization. Uh, there's a strange kind of mashup going on here because when you look again more closely at this story, it actually says that the facts are so striking and convincing that an outsider like the reviewer so the person writing for nature claims to be an outsider, not an expert, uh, and yet nature is being cited because it's an authoritative scientific source. And one of the things that I think happens in this period, and maybe continues to happen uh, throughout the 20th century, is that when really novel ideas come along, nobody quite knows who is qualified to judge them. So the sort of boundaries that we rather take for granted, there are elite scientists over there, there's the public over there, and there are sort of maybe people in between who translate what the elite scientists are doing into terms the rest of us can understand. Those barriers break down, and that's one of the things I want to illustrate uh, that goes on in this period. Now, let's come back to Hugo de Vries, who I mentioned is uh, one of the rediscoverers of Mendel. And insofar as he's part of the history of science, that basically is the only reason why. He's a footnote uh, to Mendel's story. Um, if de Vries were around, uh, you know, watching from on high or whatever, he would be deeply, deeply disappointed um, that that's the only way he survived, because he felt he'd done something much, much more important. The mutation theory, the mutations theory, published first in German, two volumes there, 1901-1903. So when the Youth's Companion is reporting this, this is very, very new. It's only just been published in German. There's no English language translation for many years. What does he say? Well, his work is largely based on this plant. This is a form of evening primrose, a species that's uh, a family that's indigenous to America. These ones he found growing in Holland at a place called Hilversum, just outside Amsterdam, where he's the professor of botany, director of the Botanic Gardens. Um, and he noticed something very strange about these plants. So he gathered the wild ones. They'd escaped from a garden and gone feral. He transplanted them back to the Botanic Gardens and spent 20 years or so studying them before he published. Uh, and this is what he said about them. The new species that he'd found appearing came into existence at once, fully equipped, without preparation or intermediate steps. There was no series of generations. There was no struggle for existence was needed. It was a sudden leap into another type, a sport in the best acceptation of the word. Sport being another word for sudden or abrupt changes in species at that time. And this is a picture from his book, The Mutations Theory, showing them being grown under controlled conditions, nets to keep insects out, little paper bags covering uh, the heads of fertilised flowers to ensure that no other pollen gets into them, all the kind of things you need to do to do controlled breeding experiments. As you can see, they're quite big plants. They grow up to sort of five, six feet high, this particular variety, um, and they take quite a lot of room to grow. And that's the point I'll come back to. Now, why is it so surprising that these things come into existence so abruptly? What's the significance of that? If we cast our mind back to Darwin for a moment, I'm sure you'll be aware that he always thought evolution was a very slow, gradual process, a process of natural selection. And in very brief terms, the reason he was sure of that is because it relied on the ordinary, small, everyday variations in a species. We all know that, of course, we all resemble our parents, but not exactly like either of them. We're a mix, and new traits appear. I have a tall, slender daughter who plays really good football. 
where did that come from? You know, there are these variations in each generation. And Darwin points out that every animal and plant is the same. Um, and his, basically what happens is through intense competition in life, the process of natural selection, any random small variation that gives its bearer any kind of small advantage in that struggle for existence, that organism is going to have a slightly better chance of reproducing and passing on that advantage, whatever it is. But because the, the advantages are small, the variations are small, the process is necessarily very slow and gradual. And that was an aspect of Darwin's theory that came in for criticism very early on. I'll give you one particular example. This is Charles Fleming Jenkin, who reviewed The Origin in 1867. So this is uh, just eight years after Darwin first publishes. This was the third edition, I think. But Darwin admitted privately in a letter that Jenkin has given me much trouble, but has been of more real use to me than any other essay or review. And the reason is that Jenkin had argued that natural selection could not create new species. The improved variations would inevitably be swamped by the older, unimproved variety. And the example that he uses of this, and I apologize in advance for the fact this is clearly racist, but this is what he said. He said, imagine a white man being shipwrecked on an island full of black people. We take it for granted, he says, and people, most white people would have taken it for granted in his day, that that white man is clearly going to be superior to all the black people. He will become king. He will doubtless slay a lot of his enemies. He will have a lot of wives. He will produce a lot of children. But what's going to happen to his children? First of all, his wives are all going to be black. His children are going to be darker skinned than he is. And Jenkins says, of course, there's nothing magic about white skin, but he's using it as a visible marker for all the other traits which he assumes confer superiority on the white man courage, intelligence, morality, whatever we th he thinks it might be, all these traits are going to behave in the same way as skin colour. So the children will be darker than him. They, to avoid incest, will all have to marry people with darker skins than they are, and they, in turn, will marry people with darker skins than they are. And over a few generations, there will be no hint of that white skin in the tribe, uh, says Jenkin. As he rather uh, succinctly and tactlessly puts it, a single white man cannot blanch a tribe of Negroes. Now, if you just, as I say, ignore the racism for a second and just think about the logic of this, think about one plant which is much taller than every other plant in the field. It has a clear advantage. It gets more sunshine, it can photosynthesize more effectively, it can grow faster, but its pollen is going to fall on the little short guys next to it. Uh, the next generation will be intermediate in height between the very tall one and the next shortest one, and so on. That one plant can't change the average uh, height of the field by itself. That's the key argument that's being made. Now, the reason Mendel is such a big deal is Mendel showed us that some of those assumptions about blending are wrong, but I'm going to leave that aside for the moment. Darwin is puzzled by this. A lot of people are puzzled by this. And at the beginning of the 20th century, that puzzle is still unsolved. So uh, lots of people are arguing around 1900 that natural selection simply cannot accomplish the things that Darwin says it can, uh, and particularly stuck on how it can produce real novelties. It might take some existing trait and make an existing plant, perhaps over many generations, a bit taller, a bit hardier or whatever. It might make you know, the deer run a little faster to get away from the wolves or whatever it is. But how could it turn, say, a flightless organism into one that can fly? How can real evolutionary novelty ever appear? Um, and one of the reviewers of de Vries's book actually says rather nicely, I think I have the quotation not far from correctly stated. Natural selection may explain the survival of the fittest, but it cannot explain the arrival of the fittest. That is, where do the new traits come from in the first place?
And this is what de Vries thought that he'd solved with his flowers. Enothera is the technical name of these plants. Lamarckiana, the one in the middle, is the species that he'd found mutating. And these are some of the variations that he'd found growing in that. Uh, in fact, it was an abandoned potato field that he took back and studied. Um, and as you can see, they're distinctly different from the parental type. The two things that he thought were really important was there's immediate sterility between the parental type and the offspring. So that problem of swamping kind of goes away um, because the pollen simply doesn't, it doesn't work to fertilize the new variety from the old one and vice versa. So that's part of the problem solved. But of course, the problem would then be, well, what good is it being one new plant in a field full of plants with whom you are mutually sterile? There's no future in that, right? Um, but uh, de Vries points out that there is something called mutation periods. This is his solution to the argument that uh, wh why has nobody noticed this process before if it's such a big deal? He says, well, actually, most species are stable most of the time. And those, there are small fluctuating variations which are subject to natural selection, just as Darwin says, but they're not the big story of evolution. The big story is now and again, for reasons that we don't yet understand, species undergo rapid change. And you get these mutation periods where lots of new types appear rapidly. And because a lot of them appear at the same time, they can breed with each other. So that overcomes that problem of being the one lone new type uh, in a field of the older varieties. And this theory, and not Mendel's, is the one that really inspires the Carnegie Institution of Washington to fund this new station. Um, Davenport actually tells, first of all, de Vries is the, the guest of honor at the, th at, the, at the station's opening, but he tells the assembled dignitaries, he, he actually kind of brandished the mutation theory at them, the book. The most important work on evolution since Darwin's Origin of Species, a work destined to be the foundation stone of the rising science of experimental evolution. And experimental evolution, I think, in 1900 must have sounded almost like an oxymoron. How could you possibly do experiments on something so slow and so gradual that nobody could see it happening? Well, de Vries seems to have found the answer. And all the kind of remarkable things that the newspaper's reporting flow directly from the promise of de Vries's theory. Now, the fact that this story pops up first in somewhere like The Youth's Companion and gets a lot more coverage in newspapers and popular media at the time before it even trickles into the scientific uh, media is not coincidental and I think is actually very important to the way this story works. So this is one of my favorite machines of all time. Those of you of a certain age may recognize this as a linotype machine. Um, and in the very last uh, month, the, the, the first few months of my work as a printer many decades ago, we still had one linotype machine and its operator fired it up for me and actually set some type for me before it went off to the Museum of Printing in Watford. Um, it's an astonishing, astonishing piece of machine if you ever get to see one working. Uh, very simply, those racks at the top will contain little tiny brass mats. If I go on for more than two hours about this, you'll have to stop me, okay, because I'm really fascinated with the history of printing, right? Um, little tiny brass mats, you press a keyboard, they slide down those channels, they have little notches in the side so they can all be sorted. They fall into a line. Once you've got the end of a line, you press a handle and little spacers shoot up that make equal space between each word. 
and hot metal is poured into them and you produce a line of type, linotype, which falls down into a tray at the side and goes off ready to be made into like a column of newsprint ready to be printed. And the mats all go round in a lovely clinking, clanking sound round the back and are redistributed back into the slots where they came from. Um, but machinery like this, and it's only one of a number of important machines that are invented in printing at the end of the 19th century, produce a fresh transformation in the economics of printing and publishing at that time. So, if we go back to 1885 when uh, Mergenthaler's linotype machine is just appearing. The four best-selling monthlies in America all cost 25 to 35 cents a month. That's quite expensive. They had a combined circulation of 600,000 copies. Right? We jump forward to 1905, the term that we're looking at now. There are 20 magazines at the top of the market, a huge proliferation. They now cost 10 to 15 cents each. They have a combined circulation of five and a half million. So there's a colossal explosion in the number of titles and the price falls really rapidly. By 1914, I just discovered this recently, American printers are producing 14 billion publications a year, 99% of which are newspapers and magazines. And of course, one of the things that does is it means there's way more column inches to fill. Uh, and so uh, all kinds of stories get picked up and covered, which would never have made any kind of impact at all a little while earlier. And of course, one of the things that happens when there's a lot of column inches to fill is people, you know, they, they borrow from other publications. An awful lot of stories get repeated with very little change. We do get the beginnings of formal syndication and paid for syndication, but there's a great deal of piracy and plagiarism going on at the same time. By 1920, every home in America receives, on average, at least one daily paper. So there's a massive, massive explosion. The other thing, which is part of the story, just coincidentally, and one of the things that the magazines are filling their column inches with, are um, cartoons. And this one, uh, I rather like the Carnegie $10 million pension fund for college professors. And you can see all my fellow superannuated professors here rushing off to get their hands. Andrew Carnegie, the steel millionaire, had endowed the Carnegie Foundation with this colossal amount of money, worried that America was falling behind in basic research. Uh, and so he sets up this extraordinary fund um, which, which funds the institution in Washington and a great many others, all kinds of things. So there's a great deal of media excitement about this massive amounts of money being thrown at science as well. That all helps feed the kind of boom. And we can just see a few examples of this. Uh, I, I have millions of these, right? Well, I'll spare you 99.9% .9 of them. But the newspapers regularly cover De Vries. Uh, and his picture is in the papers regularly in America at this time. Famed botanist disagrees with Darwin's theory, according to the San Francisco Call. Um, this is a Washington paper. Noted Holland expert tells how to double our crops. Professor Hugo de Vries of Amsterdam University, the Darwin of botany, now visiting this country, gives the solution of America's biggest agricultural problem. So what de Vries is telling people is, of course, we don't yet know what causes mutation, but once we do, we'll be able to produce mutations to order. And that means the whole process of breeding better crops can be speeded up dramatically, uh, and we can massively produce, uh, increase farm yields. And it's worth thinking just briefly about the context of this. This is a period when immigration to America has reached its all-time high, a million people a year coming into the country. And there is some real anxiety about whether America can feed that many new people. So there does seem to be some real pressure on the farming industry, and the desire for new crops is a very real one. Um, another dramatic picture, uh, Darwin and de Vries side by side, 
um, the traditional ape, which is always used to signify Darwin's monkey theory and so on. Um, and I, you know, De Vries was becoming very, very famous. It's an impossible speculation to prove, um, but I suspect that if you were to ask most Americans at the beginning of the 20th century, who is the world's most famous living scientist, not inventor, De Vries might well have been the person they said. In the, before the Einstein boom begins, and after 1915, uh, his, he's incredibly often featured in the newspapers and often with these big pictures. If you'd said inventor, of course, Edison would have taken the prize, but, but uh, for pure science, I think De Vries was better known. My favorite example of this coverage is this one, Evolution's Worst Knock, um, which does the usual Darwin was wrong story and so on, San Francisco Chronicle. Um, I love this picture at the top. Still friends, no longer relatives. That is the most perverse and weird reading of the mutation theory imaginable. The story actually begins, so man didn't evolute from a monkey after all. I, I have no idea where they got that from, but why is the human Chinese? I, you know, I, I've looked at this picture over and over again. Anyone who has any answers, please email me afterwards because I'm still baffled by this one. But it's a full page story and it's got lots of pictures. We just go back, lots of pictures of Enothera's picture of De Vries. You know, it's all about this theory. So it gets coverage in the most bizarre and interesting ways, but it gets the coverage. Um, let's come back to this story for a second. And I just want to quickly mention the fact that, as I said, this is picked up in other papers. The same story runs again. Um, and you can remember here we saw that there is living raw material in the shape of guinea pigs. One of the other papers that runs this story uh, commissions its own illustration. There are the guinea pigs again, pictures of the thing. But I love this illustration in the middle. Some raw material, human beings themselves, are going to be subject to exactly the same kinds of experimental improvement uh, that other kinds of animals are. Now... The mutation theory doesn't last very long in the scientific community. And one of the ways you might explain that is those points that I was talking about at the beginning, that the plant is quite big. Most species are biennial, so they only flower every other year. It takes quite a lot of space to grow. And one way you could tell the history of biology, and I have told the history of biology in this way, is that it's a search for better model organisms, particularly things that are small and fast and cheap. So the big star of this early period of the 20th century is to be found in places like this. Um, and you can see there are half-pint milk bottles here with cotton wool in the top, and there are bananas on the top, at the top. Who's the star of this room? The friendly fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. Um, and Drosophila turned out to be a great experimental organism, particularly because this work was done at Columbia University um, on the um, Upper East Side. And, uh, you know, fruit flies make great New Yorkers. They don't mind living in small, cramped apartments. Um, so they were well adapted to the circumstances. You hadn't got fields to grow things like Enothera there and so on. So there are a number of reasons why Enothera loses out. But the most important one is that what's true of Enothera does not appear to be true of other organisms. Whereas Drosophila, it turns out what's true of Drosophila is true of everything. Uh, and they really become a model for all kinds of genetics, including our own. So there's, this is, we're now back with the conventional history of science explanation. There are good reasons why in the theory didn't work out as model organisms, and there are good reasons why the mutation theory didn't work out. End of story, De Vries, just a footnote in the history of biology. We can all go home. Well, not just yet. I want to give one example um, of how the mutation theory captures people's imagination. The way that people read all this stuff that is circulating in magazines and newspapers and books, 
and the imaginative possibilities that it opens up. And the example I'm going to use, and again, I have a lot of these, but I'll spare you, is this novel Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. You may know of Gilman. She's uh, an American feminist econ economist, a very well-known writer uh, um, on the time. Uh, she wrote quite a lot of fiction. She's best known for a story called The Yellow Wallpaper, which is in sort of almost every anthology of great American short stories. Incredibly, actually, really powerful, harrowing story based on her own life. Um, but she's also a, a great writer of utopias, uh, and she wrote a great many. She also just wrote a great deal on all possible subjects, uh, to the extent that she ended up having to start her own magazine, The Forerunner. Um, she wrote every word of it, she edited it, uh, she sold it, she wouldn't take any adverts unless she personally agreed with what they had to say. Um, and this ran for many years. <laughs> she, you know, she had to fill all these column inches by herself because she had so much to say. And one of the things she publishes is this novel, Herland, which appears in serial form starting in 1915. And it is in many ways a kind of classic lost world uh, in the shape of many utopian fictions, except there are only women there. Uh, and she, uh, this is the kind of imaginative hook that gets you to think about how different the world might be. So it has all kinds of classic utopian qualities. There's no private property, there is no violence, there's no inequality. Um, and the way she tells the story is quite sophisticated. She has a three male explorers who are searching in the unnamed jungles. It's presumably somewhere in South America, but it's never spelt out. Uh, and they discover this isolated plateau. Luckily, they happen to have a folding aeroplane with them, so they can fly up uh, and explore. Um, and this is the story of their adventures. So they discover, uh, once they get to know the Herlanders and learn their language, the story of the place and how it came to exist. So there was a, a, a war many years earlier. All the men were away at the war. Most of them were, were killed. And then there was a, um, an earthquake which closed the one and only pass uh, to Herland, leaving it cut off. So Van Dyke Jennings Van, who is the main narrator, says, there was literally no one left on this beautiful high garden land but a bunch of hysterical girls and some older slave women. Um, the few male slaves rise up to decide they can enslave the women, and the women decide not so keen on that and slaughter them. So they're left with no men at all. Uh, and you'd think that's going to be, you know, kind of a problem. Um, that was 2,000 years ago. So somehow the women have survived without any men for 2,000 years. Um, and the men are, as you might understand, rather baffled by this, and at first assume there must be men kind of hidden about the place somewhere. So one of the other male visitors, Terry, who is the kind of embodiment of male chauvinist piggery in the story. There must be men hidden somewhere. If they were parthenogetic, if they were asexually reproducing, they'd be as alike as so many ants or aphids. And yet they're not. And uh, when they're, explained, they're asked to explain how uh, they look so different, uh, Van has this comment that when we ask them in our later, more intimate conversations, how they accounted for so much divergence without cross-fertilization, they attributed it partly to the careful education which followed each slight tendency to differ, and partly to the law of mutation. This they had found in their own work with plants and fully pr proven in their own case. And when I first read that, I thought, law of mutation? That can only be a reference to de Vries. Mutation isn't used in the modern sense, the Mendelian sense, at all at this time. That sent me off basically on a chase to find out how on earth could uh, Gilman ever have found out about this completely obscure um, scientific theory that was forgotten in five minutes, and that's what led me to all the media coverage and stuff that I've been showing you. Um, but it's interesting that 
that has provided Gilman with a spark. If you could suddenly have a new species emerge, then anything's possible. And the story that's told by the Herlanders is that one woman starts to give birth to daughters, and at first they think, well, there's a man hiding somewhere, there's no men. Each of their daughters inherits the mother's ability to give birth to daughters uh, without sex and so on, and that's the origin of their whole species. Um, and what's interesting is that you, you can actually tell, one of the many things you can tell from this is that Gilman really knows about biology and contemporary biology, and there are all kinds of details. So, for example, the, when the women explain that they consciously nurture each variation through particular care and education uh, so that it fixes and becomes part of the variety, um, Terry says, but acquired traits are not transmissible. Weissman has proved that. So acquired traits is a reference to what's called Lamarckian inheritance, which is the idea that what happens to you in your life can somehow be passed on to your offspring. It's one of those things that many people wish were true, but most biologists are convinced is not. Um, I mean, my wife and I have nine university degrees between us. Our children should have been born with like a couple of GCSEs each at least, but no, you know, they have to start from scratch, learning from scratch, just like we did. So... Uh, but it's interesting that Weissman's famous experiments where he cuts the tails off mice for generation upon generation, every single generation still produces t mice with tails, uh, is taken to be conclusive proof that Lamarck was wrong and that that kind of inheritance doesn't work. And leaving that whole debate aside, it's just interesting that Gilman knows that, puts it into the story. Um, and what have they done with all this biological... Uh, no, oh, sorry, but Zava says, well, our improvement must be due either to mutation or solely to education. We certainly have improved, so mutation is evoked again. Um, and it's interesting that throughout the novel, the, the women are calm, rational, and extremely well-educated and serious, uh, and the men tend to be kind of hysterical and irrational and uh, lose their tempers and so on in all kinds of unpleasant ways. Um, the other thing I love about this, this is something that comes up in all Gilman's uh, utopias. In the future, uh, you know, there will be communal childcare. Women who are actually good at raising children will take responsibility for it. There'll be communal cooking so that only people who like cooking will have it. And most importantly of all, women's clothing will have pockets. This comes up again and again in her utopias as the, the thing she most hopes for the future. Um, the Herlanders, with their pockets and their scientific knowledge, decide to focus on farming. They've got this relatively small land. Uh, they need to make the best possible use they can of it. Um, and Van says, they worked out a system of intensive agriculture surpassing anything I ever heard of, with the very forests all reset with fruit or nut-bearing trees. Um, and there's a lot of detail about this. When he describes the world as a high garden, he means it quite literally. Every inch of this landscape has been remade by these women according to their sense of what they need. Um, they uh, decide they're only going to grow trees with edible fruits or nuts, but there's one that they really love. It's so beautiful, sadly the nuts are inedible, so they actually spend 900 years selectively breeding this plant until they finally get it to produce an edible crop and they can justify keeping it. Um, and, uh, of course, part of what Gilman is telling us is that women can be as rational, as organised and capable of long-term planning as any man can be, and possibly more so. Um, but the guiding principle that shapes her land is that nature itself has to be remade. It has to be remade to serve human needs. Um, and so one of the children finds a moth whose uh, caterpillars are known to feed on these beautiful nut trees, uh, and all the children in Herland are set to work to systematically hunt out the eggs, the caterpillars, the moth, and exterminate them. Um, so this isn't any kind of simple-minded eco-fable where they live in harmony with nature, quite the opposite. Nature is being cultivated, farmed, made into something that suits human needs 
and human purposes, and the mutation theory is one of the key scientific tools that they're going to use to do that. The other example which I love is that the Herlanders keep cats uh, to destroy mice and other enemies of the food supply, as they put it. Um, but they find the cats a bit exasperating. They particularly find the tomcats yowling at mating time annoying. So they cut the number of tomcats down to the absolute bare minimum. But then they actually breed, they develop a race of cats that did not sing. Um, <laughs> And uh, so feline nature is a subject to remaking as any other kind of nature. If an instinct bothers them, they get rid of it. And then the, the crux of the story, I'm sorry, spoiler alert here, uh, is that um, it turns out that human nature has been changed and improved as well. So any antisocial tendencies that they don't like the look of, they have systematically got rid of from their own population. Um, and when uh, the men decide, uh, in collaboration with the women, that maybe cross-fertilization should be reintroduced and they, three, the three men marry three of the Herlanders, they are um, very surprised to discover that the sex instinct has atrophied uh, and that apart from reproduction, the women have no interest in sex whatsoever, uh, which leads to... Um, the men being expelled from her land as they don't quite see the world in the same way. Um, but the notion that human nature might eventually be remade in exactly the same way as any other kind of nature is part of this fable. And as I say, uh, Gilman takes these snippets of biology, the most up-to-date contemporary biology, she reads very carefully the contemporary debates around this, picks out the things that are going to be useful to her. And this is another example of what I want to call interpretation. Uh, the imaginative possibilities of biology being used and filter out into all kinds of unexpected places. So let's get back to bacon for a minute and the strawberries that need to be in wheelbarrows. If we come back to this um, story that I started with, uh, Davenport is quoted as saying, when we know the law, we may control the process. This is the key promise that de Vries has made. Once we've figured out what causes mutations, um, probably something to do with changing the circumstances. That's why this American plant that's moved to uh, Europe has mutated and started producing new spaces. But once we understand it, we can control it. And that promise of control over living things is the thing that really excites people about experimental evolution. Um, as he said, experimental evolution would teach humans how organisms may best be modified to meet our requirements of beauty, food, materials, and power. And this is precisely the kind of statement which I think is out there in the papers and so on, which feeds Gilman's imagination. So I've got plenty of other examples of that. But this is the notion of control over nature is circulating in all kinds of strange places. And one of the things then that's going to happen is it would show the way to an improvement of the human race. Davenport is well known today because one of the other things that he founds at Cold Spring Harbor is um, the uh, a research institute for research into eugenics. Uh, and he's a, a strong advocate of eugenics, as many American geneticists are uh, in this period. But for a brief period, there's this excitement that mutation theory may actually give us the tools to do all the things we hope eugenics would do, but do them really quickly uh, without having to wait for many, many generations of uh, you know, sterilizing the undesirable and hoping that the most desirable breed more and so on. And so the way the newspaper editor glosses that is how to produce Superman, <laughs> um, that, that humans themselves can be remade. And this, the, uh, the journalist explains that Davenport and his colleagues are currently working on inventing to order beetles with certain spots or guinea pigs with four toes, which they readily admit might seem useless and silly. But he quotes again that claim, 
when we know the law, we may control the process. And the journalist goes on to speculate um, that once we know that, will not the same law enable science to breed at will a race of big-brained, deep-chested, fleet-limbed, strong-muscled human geniuses with lofty morals, acute senses, and blood highly resistant to the bacilli of disease? So these are, you know, all the things that are going to be part of the dream of eugenics uh, already seem to be on promise thanks to these early stages of a sort of uh, experimental evolution. The journalist who wrote that story, you may just have noticed his name, which, as I say, was syndicated. John Elfrith Watkins wrote a mass of stuff on all kinds of subjects, but he wrote quite a bit on science at one time or another, and he was quite fond of these sort of predicting the future kind of stories. He, it's obviously the way his imagination worked. As soon as he got hold of a bit of scientific fact, he'd run off and predict. So uh, the Ladies' Home Journal, which is a massively best-selling magazine in 1900, he wrote a piece called... Um, what may happen in the next hundred years in 1900, marking the new century. Um, and amongst many things, he says, vegetables will be grown by electricity. Artificial light and heat would allow all year round cultivation, but electricity would also kill weeds and stimulate growth so that strawberries as large as apples will be eaten by our great-great-grandchildren for their Christmas dinners a hundred years hence. So they don't quite need to be in wheelbarrows, but there's certainly, you know, impressive possibilities are there. Uh, that sense that the future holds all kinds of miracles and that living things can be transformed as well as any other kind of thing is very vivid, I think. Um, and one of the things I noticed as I looked into all this and noticed is that phrase about the dream of bacon, which he used in the first story that I referred to. Um, it's not acknowledged as a quote in the story. And um, I'm obviously not accusing a long dead journalist of plagiarism. That's kind of seriously irrelevant. He was a busy man. He wrote a great deal. But I want to make a uh, point that I hope is more interesting. He takes it from the Carnegie Institution's yearbook for 1904, which is as dull and sober a document as you could ever hope to read. Um, and in it, they report Davenport's speech, which he made at the opening of the new station. And he told the benefactors that they had made possible the realisation at Cold Spring Harbour of that dream of bacon who saw in the new Atlantis gardens devoted to the experimental modification and improvement of animals and plants and so forth, all the miracles that we thought about, uh, that we'd been promised by the newspapers. Um, he's flattering the sponsors, obviously, and the more educated among them might well have known that uh, uh, Bacon, of course, wrote the New Atlantis, as all his other books, in order to try and get the monarch to fund uh, an institution like Solomon's House uh, and uh, 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 you know, make these dreams come true with this new experimental philosophy. When the Royal Society is finally founded in, as I mentioned in the first lecture, direct uh, emulation of Bacon's dream in 1660, King Charles II has no money with which to endow it. Uh, due to the unfortunate circumstances of the previous 20 years. Uh, and so there's a little sly like you, unlike King Charles II, have actually got money to make Bacon's dream come true. Thank you very much. Um, and the other things that are quoted there, the principles of evolution will show the way to an improvement of the human race, they sound like the kind of things a scientist is going to tell a journalist. I mean, the other thing that's going on at this time with this explosion in media uh, um, that I've been talking about, all these new newspapers and magazines, is that science is an increasingly public business and it's got to compete for the public's attention and it's got to compete for Mr. Carnegie's attention and it's got to compete for government attention and so on. So you, you hype it up a little bit when you're talking to a journalist. But in fact, all of those quotes... Um, are also lifted from the Carnegie Yearbook from a different edition where Carnegie is simply reporting the year's work to the trustees. 
And the th one of the many things I found interesting about this cross-pollination between all these different kinds of publication, the way these ideas circulate, is how the same kind of language uh, is being used. So uh, a, a scientific research institution's director's report, you can just take phrases and lock, drop them straight into a newspaper and they don't look out of place. So the utopian hopes are circulating in these many different genres and formats. Um, so there's a kind of language of utopia in all these different things uh, which harks back to Bacon uh, and evokes this long-standing idea of remaking nature to order. I'll leave you uh, briefly with this quote. Mutation, it is the key to our evolution. This process is slow, normally taking thousands and thousands of years, but every few hundred millennia, evolution leaps forward. That sounds like Hugo de Vries, right? That's the kind of thing he would have said. No, okay? This is the opening crawl from the first X-Men movie. <laughs> and uh, you can imagine that, what I was thinking as I sat through this in the cinema with my teenage son thinking, de Vries lives, you know? <laughs> and one of the curious afterlives of this conception of mutation, which, as I say, got erased from mainstream biology very quickly, but lingered on in all these other places, is mutant stories. So this is just a brief selection of the embarrassingly large number of these that I have read in the last few years, uh, over and over and over again. And what's interesting is that uh, the X-Men series, which I'm sure some of you will have seen at least some of, has good and bad mutants, uh, and they battle each other. So there is still, as it were, selection going on after the fact of mutation, just as de Vries predicted. Um, this, you know, this, it, this reminds me of the story which... Um, um, uh, God blanking on his name, Milan Kundra tells of the, um, the founder of the Czech Republic who uh, was, appears on the balcony when the president, make his, he's standing next to the president when they announce the Czech Republic, and then later on in the story of the Czech Republic, he's, he's, he, the, the president is cold and his friend lends him his hat. And then later on, the friend is disgraced and the Stalinist censors come out and they airbrush him out of history so that all that's left is his hat perched that's the only trace of him in the official record. And if, I feel like science fiction is kind of wearing de Vries's hat, even now, uh, without knowing it. Um, this theory has had this extraordinary afterlife. Just coming here this evening, I passed an ad for the latest Adidas trainers, which are described as mutation. That, that refers to this concept of an astonishing, exciting new species at a single leap. Um, and then the other place that this language of infinite possibility around biology persists is in ads like this. Thanks a million, make that 11 million. Thanks to advanced farming practices, Americans farmers reduce their CO2 emissions 11 million tons in one year. That's the same amount produced by 1 million SUVs. Few industries have shown such respect for the environment. Very utopian. Guess whose ad this is? Monsanto, of course, who else would it be? So the language of mutation and the language of utopianism that goes with it has this strange afterlife in the culture long after the kind of strict historians of science have forgotten about it. And I still think it's there in all kinds of ways, in the way that we think about making new plants and the possibilities of new plants right up to today. Uh, we will feed the world, we will solve greenhouse gas, you know, greenhouse warming and all the rest of it uh, with a bit of technological know-how, is the hope. Thank you all very much.